Well, grace, peace, and mercy be unto you from God our Father and our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, the Good Shepherd. Amen. Man, if this time of us being apart has been odd, uh, I certainly had one of the more odd experiences in my life last week. As the one that sort of helped plan and then execute Sunday morning church, it was pretty strange for me Sunday morning when I went to church. We went downstairs. I had Paul with me. Jack was upstairs taking a nap. Paul lined up all of his friends, his stuffed animals, on the couch downstairs. So I sat on the floor so Natalie could have the couch. And then I watched myself talk at myself for an extraordinarily long time. It was a unique perspective. And as Christians, we have a unique perspective on all of life. And this is sort of continuing our sermon series on the resurrection, the the three Ps that we talked about on Easter Sunday, the physical aspect of the resurrection, the bodily resurrection, the personal aspect, how God knows you by name, and now the perspective of life after the resurrection. See, new perspectives are helpful. Sometimes they're not always in harmony with a way that we currently think or a way that we used to think. And I certainly gained a new perspective on how we do online worship. We had some audio things to try and figure out. Uh, I thought, gosh, not that I want you any closer to my face, but maybe we should zoom in a little bit. So we, we looked at those things and we tried to work through it. And today, I think that we gain a new perspective from the scriptures. Today's sermon contains two major topic headings. What the Bible says we as a church should be about. And then where we're potentially in conflict with what we are about as a church. So two pieces. What the Bible says we should be about. And what we currently are about or maybe what we're doing to move back to be in harmony with the scriptures. So first, what does the Bible say? We as the church should be about. What's the the resurrection perspective? In Acts chapter 2, it's immediately following Pentecost. And there's all these people in Jerusalem where Jesus had been crucified and rose again. Pentecost, the Holy Spirit has come down and descended upon not just the Jews, the elect chosen people of God, but everybody. Because everybody is chosen now. Jews and Gentiles and Greeks and Scythians and barbarians. They are all in God's house now. The very beginnings of the church. And Acts chapter 2, verses 42 and 43, tell us at the very beginning what we should be about. So I'd like to read those two verses to you, and I think they're on the screen. They devoted themselves, the church devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, the fellowship, the breaking of the bread, and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. Those are sort of the the mission statement, what the church should be doing. And I've got four items, and if we work kind of backwards in that passage, four items that we're going to highlight today. If you're working backwards, there's signs being done through the apostles. Well, uh, we're not going to take up snake handling here at Concordia Lutheran Church or miraculous healings, uh, because I'm not an apostle. I'm a pastor. But if you work backwards, uh, awe 
is one thing we're going to talk about. We're going to talk about the, the prayers, the breaking of the bread, and teaching. Those are the sort of four things that we're going to cover today, and let's, let's get after it. So teaching. In Matthew chapter 28, verse 20, Jesus says, Teach them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always until the very end of the age. In Acts chapter 2, teaching is linked to fellowship. Did you hear Jesus say that? Teach them to observe all that I commanded you, and behold, I am with you always until the very end of the age. Teaching and fellowship go hand in hand. It's because as Christians, we assume a new identity. There is no other way for people to be together anymore once you become a Christian. We don't identify whether you're a UW fan or a WSU fan, though that may be hard to believe. We don't identify as Gentiles or Jews or Scythians or male or female. We don't do those things anymore because what is primary and what is of utter importance is the personhood and the teachings of Jesus Christ. That is what matters. In Acts chapter 2, it says that they devoted themselves to the teachings of the apostles. And we might ask ourselves, well, why the apostles and not Jesus? If you've ever been on any even mediocre atheist website, they always point out that Jesus never wrote anything. And whether that part's true or not, I don't know. But we don't have any surviving records of what Jesus wrote. He left it all to his disciples, to the apostles. And if you were in Bible class earlier, you learned that the word for teaching is Didache, which is one of the earliest surviving documents we have from the church. The oldest copy is from about 200, and it's a book just called Teachings. And it's the teachings of the 12, and it, it starts out literally with the words, Behold, there are two ways, the way of life and the way of death. Christians believe that teaching about Jesus leads to life. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me, says the Christ. So how do we know that the teachings of the apostles are reliable? Well, they sought to elucidate what was going to be truthful and important and helpful at the very beginning. Remember in Acts chapter 1 when they're going to replace Judas, that guy who had betrayed Jesus? What did they say? There were certain criteria. This new apostle, this new disciple, was going to have to be with them from the very beginning and be a witness to the crucifixion and more importantly, a witness to the resurrection. The teachings of the apostles are eyewitness accounts of what happened to Jesus and what Jesus said. We have really very amazing records from the early church of what the apostles taught both personal accounts from Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and secondary accounts that confirm those things. There's a, a church father named Papias, like the fruit. <laughs> he lived from 60 AD to 130. And a Papias has a diary that's been recorded by all these other historians pointing out that Papias sat at the feet of St. John and confirmed with Mark, what St. John had taught. Isn't that crazy? That their two stories collaborated? We have first-generation accounts that teach us the reliability of the Gospels. 
The apostles' teaching is about Jesus, and that's why it's reliable. Anything else would be unreliable. And we, as the church, we find fellowship in that teaching. We find koinonia. Koinonia is simply the the Greek word for fellowship. You see it all over the place. In fact, at WSU, we used to have the K house, the koinonia house. We find fellowship in the teachings of the apostles because they are about Jesus. When someone joins a church, there are a lot of reasons that they join, but the first and primary, and I would argue kind of the only reason they should ever join a church is because it teaches about Jesus. That's what the church is about. We are gathered together to talk about Jesus. Which leads us to the next part. We are in koinonia, fellowship together, to be with Jesus, which is found in the breaking of bread. If you look at Luke chapter 24, verse 35, immediately following the resurrection account, Luke, the author of Acts, which we read from earlier, Luke records this account from the disciples after they've met with the risen Lord and Jesus has explained everything. These disciples are explaining the resurrection encounter to the other disciples and it says, Then they told what had happened on the road and how he, Jesus, was known to them in the breaking of the bread. It's all about Jesus. Jesus is in the communion meal. There's a terrible old movie called Zoolander where Ben Stiller is a male model and at some point uh, he's sent on some secret mission and he has to get documents out of a computer and he can't find these documents anywhere on the desk and he calls his, uh, his cohort or whatever and they say, the documents are in the computer and Stiller turns and he looks and he sees this computer on the desk and rather than typing in a password, he hears, they're in the computer. So he takes the computer and he throws it on the floor. You see, sometimes I think that's the way we treat communion. As though it's a hidden mystery. Like it's got to just be sort of crashed into and encountered. And I think there is some truth in that. That Jesus is in the computer. He's in the bread. He's in the wine. And when we break it apart, it's not the breaking of the bread that makes it happen. It's the word of God that is inside of it. Commanded for you. Do this in remembrance of me, says Jesus. And then we give it to you. This is for you, for the forgiveness of sins. The breaking of the bread and the breaking of the body and blood of Christ is the way that Christ has promised to come to us, his church. If you want to experience Jesus, then we must come to him on his own terms. And his terms are through the bread and the wine in the fellowship of the believers. That leads us to the next point. Prayers. Prayer is God's gift to the hurting and to the whole. It is for all the saints surrounded in this communion and this fellowship of believers. It's one of the foundational aspects of the church. Do you remember in the Old Testament 
right when the temple was getting started, just as Solomon was about to consecrate it, that old, old church, there's this beautiful prayer that Solomon prays before the assembly. And I want you to hear it now because this is a prayer for you and for me today. It's a prayer for the whole and for the hurting. 1 Kings 8.37 says, If there is a famine in the land, if there is pestilence or blight or mildew or locust or caterpillar, if an enemy besieges them in the land at their gates, whatever the plague, whatever sickness there is, whatever prayer, whatever plea is made by any man or by all your people Israel, each knowing the affliction of his own heart and stretching out his hands toward this house, then hear in heaven your dwelling place and forgive and act. And render to each whose heart you know according to all his ways. For you, you only know the hearts of all the children of mankind that they may fear you all the days that they live in the land that you gave to our fathers. Prayer. Prayer is how we talk with our God. And I've said this a thousand times and I'll probably say it again. That prayer is just having a conversation with God and we approach that very casually. But I also think that there's a call for us in 1 Kings and in Acts and in the rest of the scriptures that prayer is a unique medium. It requires some reverence and a little bit of thought. Yes, we can talk to him as children would talk to their father. In fact, Kings even says that and Jesus says, pray our father. But we are talking to someone of significant value and power. And it would be nice to be slightly composed when you talk to someone like that. That's why we at Concordia actually write out our prayers ahead of time. We do occasionally do ex corde from the heart. Uh, but when I talk to God, I want to be grouped. I don't want to rely on my own weaknesses. I, I like to put in a little scripture and, and think through things. Uh, I, I liken this to our current situation. One of the reasons why our services seem to be working fairly well is because we didn't just point a camera at what we've always done. We've had to think through this new medium of how you and I interact and communicate. There were a thousand different options available to us as a church for how we would proceed in this time of distance. but we had to really work through the formats. And, and every week, because of this new perspective, we've honed our craft. Jody has learned a thousand new skills, and we're still learning. And I think that's really a, a good metaphor for prayer. Yes, it is a conversation, but it is entirely different at the same time. Yes, this is a worship service, but it is entirely different at the same time. The last thing, that prayer does is prayer focuses our fear. You can see in verse 40 of that 1 Kings 8 passage, it says, they may fear you all the days they live in the land that you gave to our fathers. Prayer focuses our fear. What are you truly afraid of? There are a lot of anxieties in this time, but I'm willing to bet they stem from one major anxiety. The loss of life. There is only one who has conquered death, and that is the author of life, the one to whom and with whom we pray. 
He is the only one worth fearing. Which leads us to our last point of awe. The church should be about awe. And if you look at the Greek, you know this word actually. The word for awe is phobos, as in phobia, as in fear. Proverbs 1.7 says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. The church knew this. The early church knew that fear was going to be one of the driving things that brought them together. See, they risked their lives to be Christians. Don't you remember just some 50 days before Pentecost? 53 days? Jesus had been crucified for what? Treason. And then all throughout the first several hundred years of the church, Christians were persecuted and martyred. We were called treasonous because our first creed was Christ is Lord. Not Caesar, but Christ. The first hundred years, Christians were accused of being cannibals because of our understanding of the fellowship Christ has in the breaking of the bread. We are people that understand that life occurs with fear. But we join together in a common greater fear, a common greater awe and respect for our God. That's why before the service even began, right, I was down here drinking coffee, talking to you guys. Before I entered the chancel, I put the coffee down. I paused. Yes, God is present everywhere, but as I'm about to conduct a service, reverence is a lost virtue in the house of God. And we'll come back to that. In short and in summary, all of these are costly inconveniences. Christianity is at its core costly. This is not a cheap religion. We as the church seek to remove as many barriers to entry as possible. YouTube is a really great way for people to come into this church, but it's still hard. These are hard beliefs, hard things we talk about. I'm telling you to be afraid. That's not easy. Christianity is hard. Sunday morning is not a great time to meet. I would much rather sleep in and have a Danish. Giving up your offerings, not an easy thing to do, especially in light of our economy now. Putting up with other people, not easy. Putting up with pastors, not easy to do. Christianity, by design, is set to take us through the valley of the shadow of death. And Jesus sets up a helpful image for us here. He says it is the image of a a sheepfold. Now we, the church, are in this sheepfold. And in Greek, it's literally a sheep palace. Isn't that great? Sheep inside of a palace? It doesn't make sense, but neither does our salvation. A, A palace, in my mind, right? I go to this sort of medieval Disney castle, and it's a big, high, walled palace, And on one side, there's a moat. And on the other side, there's promise. Jesus says that you've got to go through the door. Otherwise, you're risking huge danger and huge fault, huge harm. 
Jesus sets up a simple path that is sometimes inconvenient because you've got to go all the way around the moat to the door. If you look at John chapter 10, verse 7, Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. We, the church, are supposed to thrive within the confines of God's word. And we've always sought to kind of move outside of what God's word gives us permission to do. And we should pause just briefly and see what the church is not supposed to do before we see what the church is. The purpose of a wall or a fence is to both keep out invaders and to keep those inside safe. And we, the church, have not always been good at this. We have not created good definitions or boundaries about who we are. We have bled out in purpose, oftentimes becoming just mere social service organizations without the promise of the gospel. What good is it if we feed someone but do not feed them for eternal life? We should do those two things together. My last congregation, whom I love dearly, and I miss, had a sign out front that said, where worship is fun. Now, on its face, it doesn't seem like that big of a deal until you officiate a particularly challenging funeral and you walk out and you think, that was not fun. You see, the church is fun at times. I think we have fun here at Concordia. Elizabeth, your children's message was fun But Good Friday, it's not fun. The return of our king with fire and trembling and tribulation, that's not a good time. It's awesome, it's good, but I wouldn't describe it as fun. We, as a church, have had many fence jumpers stealing from Christ, invading the purposes of the church and leading us to occasional harm. And it's always been that way. Galatians 1 says, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. And Paul says, not that there is another gospel, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. See, we have to be clear about who we are. In some ways, this being a part is really a blessing because it allows us to consider some of the things that we do that are not always in harmony with the scriptures. The church is fundamentally about teaching the breaking of the bread, prayers, and fear. I don't like the sound of it any more than you do. But I do love it. Teaching in this time is more and less complicated talking through the word of God is more important than ever. And it's arguably more difficult. Jody and I have spent many hours talking about how we can get the word more directly to you, God's people, which is why we're trying to put the words of the scriptures on the bottom of the screen. And we're looking at different apps where your phone would scroll with us and pull up a Bible that you could then access back later. It's why we're trying to create podcasts and really get the word of God to you. Sermons and the reading of the word have been at the center of the service always. But it's interesting because there have been invasions in the church in the past. 
saying that doctrine doesn't matter. Which is absurd. It's absurd because in every field, teaching matters. You can't go into the biology department down the street and just all of a sudden proclaim that, uh, I don't know, cells don't matter. Doctrine matters in every field. You can't have a physics professor without graphs. Doctrine matters everywhere, except for in religion somehow. People feel like it's just this subjective, whatever I want goes. History is not allowed to be revisionist. In English departments, you cannot ban books. In Christianity, what matters is the teachings of Jesus. Jesus tells us that teaching matters, which is why we at Concordia are trying to teach, albeit differently. And we're going to keep working on that thing, and if you've got ideas, please let me know. <laughs> we need help. But Concordia is also about the breaking of the bread. When we come back together, the first thing we're doing, man, is making the sacrament available. If you look at 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 11, Paul says to this church that is scattered and divided, Paul says this is how one should regard us as servants of Christ, right, about teaching, and stewards of the mysteries of God. The word for mysteries there is sacramentum. Stewards of the sacraments. The sacrament is available to you even now. Because of this hard time and challenges, uh, it's available to you through uh, visits. So call me, 509-332-2830. I will come to your house. We can do it uh, in a variety of ways, with face masks or without face masks. You can come into the church. We'll figure out a way, but the sacraments are available. They're here for you. Further, the sacraments are a mark of the church. If you go to another church or you look on ri online right now, there's some questions about what is church? How do we operate? And if you uh, understand our church body, uh, I've got Augustana 7 on your screen right now. I didn't print it out, but it says something to the effect that the true marks of the gospel of the church are the word and the sacraments. The word uh, of the gospel and the sacraments administered according to the purity of the gospel or something to that effect. The church is the, the makeup of the believers around the word and the sacrament. That is our identity. And where we're maybe not in harmony with our understanding of the scriptures with Acts chapter 2 is we don't actually practice weekly communion. It's available, but it's not necessarily at the center of every gathering. And it's just something for us to consider. It's something that I ponder every day. Should we be offering weekly communion? Daily communion? I don't know. It's worth considering. These are hard questions because communion takes a long time. It's inconvenient. C.S. Lewis has this great line where he says, if Christianity was something we were making up, of course we would make it easier. <laughs> We do hard things. One of the hard things we do is we pray.
We pray for others because when we pray for others, we come outside of ourselves. You see, the the condition of our natural sinful hearts is in this Latin phrase, incurvatus in se. And I think it's in your screen there. Incurvatus in se, turned in on one's self. Or as we would call it at preschool, selfish. Prayer forces us to think not only of others, but to intercede for them to pray for them, to lift them up, and to see them as God sees them. It also offers us a new perspective because when we talk with God, we hear how he sees us. And that requires some unique perspectives. It requires us to get over our fears of each other and look only to the fear of God. When we come together, we come together to face our fears, to give ourselves over to the one that we are powerless over. We come together in absolute fear and absolute confidence. Fear is part of life. It's part of this side of eternity. There's a lot of fear in our church and in our world. On Friday, our governor announced that there were going to be more restrictions, another probably six weeks of winter for us. And we've been asking the question, I've been asking it, and lay ministry board has been asking it of you, how do we come back together? We sent out a survey to the congregation asking you, how comfortable are you coming back together? And I want to know, because According to phase two and phase three, we go from groups of five to groups of 50, and then groups of 50 to whatever you want in phase four. Concordia has questions about how we should come together. What does that look like? Council is considering entering one to two weeks later back into fellowship, even after we're allowed to, just saying we need a week or two to think this through to alleviate some of these other fears so that we can focus on the only fear that matters. I don't know. We don't really know how this is going to unfold, but we do know that our God has a plan that is good and gracious for you. So last week, uh, Natalie and I watched that movie, 1917, World War I epic. It was really pretty good. Uh, And it won, I think, an Academy Award because it has these long-running shots uh, where it, it seems impossible, but you're following the actors through uh, like the no-man's land or along this river, these crazy long panning shots where you see the actor in these moments of peril and just off in the distance, there are clues either through the audio or what you see in the distance that the actor doesn't see of what's about to happen. You hear a plane coming to to crash into the house, and you see it behind the actors. In the water scene, you, you hear the actors about to fall off a waterfall. And you see the, the edge of the foam at the bottom of the screen just before he does. These texts act like those things on the periphery, telling us how we should operate, and what we should be expecting to see as our world unfolds. We should be expecting teaching and breaking of bread and fellowship and prayers 
and we should expect a little bit of fear. These teachings should cause us to encounter our own inconveniences and avoidances with difficult things. These texts give us boundaries that keep us safe and guide us. You see, Jesus has entered our story. He's entered our story that we may be assured that God has fully experienced our seat on the bench. He has experienced all things, as St. Peter says. He himself bore our sins on his body on the tree. But he rose so that just as he took on our perspective, in the resurrection we take on his perspective. In the resurrection we see what God sees. So may you have confidence confidence that your God knows you, that he has taken all of these blemishes and hurts and anxieties and fears and separations upon himself, and he is coming again to make them whole. 